Hey, hey, and welcome to this week's episode of Angle on Producers. As always, I am your host and fellow producer, Carolina Gropa. However you found the show, I am so grateful you're tuning in and doing this life thing with me. As you guys know, this is such a labor of love. Doing this show gives me a ton of joy. I learn a lot every single time I have a new guest. I learn when I talk to them. I learn again when I'm editing the episodes. You tuning in, you connecting with me, you subscribing to the show, liking the show, reviewing the show, engaging with me on social media, telling your friends, tagging your friends, all that stuff really matters. It's nice to know that you're out there and I'm not just talking in a void, you know? So thank you for tuning in. I'm going to keep this intro really brief. Kara Durrett really needs no introduction. She is fun to work with. In fact, she is a great time, which is a direct quote from this episode. She's an independent producer who recently produced Adama and Adana Ebo's Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul, which premiered at Sundance earlier this year. As you may recall, I also helped produce this film, so I am beyond excited for the world to finally see it. It's Regina Hall and Sterling K. Brown just being the phenomenal talent that they are and totally worthy of you spending 90 minutes or so of your time with them, with these characters, and in this world. The film premieres on September 2nd in theaters and on Peacock, so check it out. Kara also produced Celine Held and Logan George's Vanishings at Caddo Lake alongside M. Night Shyamalan, which is currently in post-production. We referred to this project as Caddo throughout the conversation when we recorded back in May, I guess it was. Yeah, she still didn't even have the title of the project, so... There's so much goodness in this conversation. I really hope you take away from it as much as I took away this go round of editing. A few gems that stuck out to me that I hope also resonate with you are why she loves working with first time film directors and the advice she has for them. The value of learning by making mistakes, just being out there and doing the thing. And the deep respect we share for crew and how much of themselves they give to bring stories to life. We also have a special guest appearance towards the end of the episode, so make sure you listen to hear what the surprise is. Thank you again for tuning in. I hope you have an amazing day, weekend, whenever it is you're listening to this, wherever you are in the world. Without further ado, here's Kara. Okay, great. Okay, so on that note, we can get started. Um, For the listeners, uh, the Kara Durrett uh, has taken almost a year of persuading to finally say yes. I still don't think she's fully convinced that she wanted to do this. I think I and maybe Lowell, her husband, bugged her enough that here she is in all her glory. <laughs> in a laundry room recording live from Louisville, Kentucky. That's right, because the life of a film producer is very glamorous. And so very glamorous. That's, that's what we do. So it is truly an honor, Milady, to finally have you on the show. <laughs> I'm very honored to be here. And just so you know, it was never that I didn't want to be on the show because of you. It's more of, I don't know what I would say that people are ever interested in. So I think I've just tried to save you from whatever that is. See, I politely disagree because anyone who knows you and has worked with you only has the best things to say about you and all the things that you know and that you've taught them, myself included. So like, you know, I get it that we, especially as women, always want to downplay our value and our worth and what we bring to the table. But nay, I say not on angle on producers. Here we are. (laughs) Here we are. Here Here we are, world. So Obviously, I want to take us to the beginning and start with what led you to the arts because you started out like me, like as an actor, and you have a mother who was 
was a producer in Dallas. So walk us through like, what it like, what was it the first thing that maybe inspired you to even get into the arts? Well, like baby Kara. Um, I mean, my mom was always in the arts. I mean, it was probably my mom. My mom was always in the arts and she was always kind of encouraging all of us to do it. And none of my brothers ever wanted to. I mean, I was doing it probably from like such a young age and I was only acting because it's like, you know, it's the only thing you do when you're a kid. It's not like you're going to go be like a mini producer or something. (laughs) So it's like, there's nothing, there's nothing else to do as a kid. If you want to be in the arts, except like be either an actor, you're like a stage manager and the stage manager is like not as glorious. So no. (laughs) um, Yeah. I don't know. I acted for all growing up and I was tone deaf and I couldn't dance. And that put me in basically just like a very small category of theater And then, yeah, I went to college for it because I was able to get a scholarship for it. And I thought I wanted to do it for a living because I didn't really understand what it meant to be an actor for a living. I think in my mind, like, I mean, you and I have talked about this before, but like whenever you're an actor as a kid, you just think that you move and then you get on a TV show and then you're like, and then I act forever. And that's like life. And then you don't really understand what the journey is or what the life is, honestly. So yeah, after yeah, college, sure. so you went, you went to Tish. I went to Tish. I went to my yeah. for acting. Mm-hmm. I went to the Atlantic theater company. Um, yeah. And I got lucky. I got like scholarships and I lied and said that I had been an RA before and I got free housing and <laughs> I got like, all the, all the things to help me afford to live there. I was yeah. like a cater waiter on the weekends. Yeah. Um, Talk a little bit about that because when you were in New York surviving out there, that grind, you were working in catering. That's when you got into wedding planning, right? To like kind of self-sustain. I was a cater waiter who turned wedding planner only because I met wedding planners at catering events. And I was like, she wears a dress and drinks Chardonnay and seems like way easier. And I think she's making more than I am. (laughs) And so I would like become friends with the wedding planners and it would be like, 22 year old girls. And they're like, yeah, I'm making a thousand a day. And I was like, that's incredible. Yeah. I remember I printed business cards and I went around to all the wedding venues in New York and I just told them that I had done it before and I had never done it. And then I faked it until I faked it until I made it as a wedding planner. Yeah. And then, yeah, I started doing that. And then I mean, producing is like basically wedding planning. That's what I've learned. Yeah. Yeah. Dive deep a little bit more. In what ways, what are the parallels? I mean, wedding planning is funny because it's literally... Every day you go to work, it is someone's most important day in their life or to them, you know, it's like the stakes are so high. They could not be higher. So people are on edge. There's so much money involved. There is a budget. There are people, you know, who are the lead characters. There are side characters. There are dynamics within the cast, if you want to call it that, like you are protecting the drunk uncle from the other aunt and they hate each other. And like, you were told about that beforehand, there is a schedule you have to stay on. Your vendors have to show up to feed everyone. It's like the exact same skills. So would you say then that the bride is the director? Um, I would say the bride is the lead actress. Mm. I, think, I, I think the director is probably the bride's mother. Yeah. <laughs> We're like parents <laughs> is my guess. Because yeah. a, bri- a lot of brides are really chill. They're very stressed and they're very overwhelmed. But like... Most brides, for the most part, are just trying to enjoy the day, at least like the ones that I had. I always had really good ones. Um, And they were always just trying to like enjoy their friends and their families and like have fun and stuff. But it wasn't as crazy as like, I mean, I've heard horror stories from other friends of mine. One of my best friends is like still a wedding planner in New York right now. Yeah. Tells me stories and I'm like, I don't know how you do it. It's crazy. Yeah. So then you left the glamorous life of wedding planning behind. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> I left it behind uh, by choice. And then I went into events, which was kind of like working 
as an events person. So I would do like for filming locations, I would like handle the, the buildings or for um, live events. I did a lot of like concerts. I did like a Coldplay concert and Sam, Sam Smith, I was going to say Sam Elliott. Sam Elliott did not do a concert. Um, Sam Smith concert or I did the Grammys party one year, just things like that. Yeah. Worked at the Ace Hotel for a little while as like an events manager. Then I was, I was still acting during all that time. And it was the perfect gig for acting because I only worked on Saturdays or Fridays. And for acting, you just like need the week open to audition. So I would basically use the week to audition and to prepare. And if I booked a show, you know, I'd take off events for a little while. So when you got into like the, I guess, after school, you were there for a bit, like doing the acting thing for a while. Like, what was that time like for you? Did you get some traction where where things kind of happening or like at what point did you really go, wow, like to what you said earlier, the lifestyle of an actor is really, really hard. (laughs) Well, it's not even that it's hard. It's that it's for a specific kind of person. Like you and I have talked Mm -hmm. about this many times, like your producing life is just as hard as an actor's life is just as hard as a director's life. Like a lot of them are hard. It is just like what kind of personality you are. And so for Mm me, I always loved acting because I loved creating things. I loved collaboration. I loved art. I loved reading beautiful work and like putting it to life and having it move people. Those were all things that were like inherently a part of my goal in life was to have this like connection with people. But at the same time, I, I could not handle not having control over that art, not having control over the work, who is calling me, where I'm doing it, how much I'm getting paid, what is my time worth? Like all of those things are the things that I would kind of just, I, I couldn't handle the like unknown. And there were so many people out there who can, they're just like waiting for the phone call and they do that with grace. And like, I was never one of those. I was yeah. always like trying to micromanage it behind the scenes. So it just never really made sense for me. I mean, yeah, I, I was in New York. I I wouldn't say I had like, traction but I definitely was booking stuff like I played a secretary on the good wife I think like <laughs> I played like tiny little characters on little tv shows yeah. or I got a I got a job as like a side character at a show at a theater that I really loved in New York and I was like oh now I've made it and then after I got my $200 stipend I was like I can't even afford the train fare while I'm like doing yeah. the show at this theater that I love and have been like waiting to get it in front of and have an audience and then you do the show and six people come and four of those people are your friends and you're just kind of like what is it all for like yeah at a certain point you just kind of start hitting this grind where you're like I love it so much I still want to tell stories I still want to be an artist but like what does it mean to like live this lifestyle right could I ever have children could I ever how do you sustain it yeah 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 how do you sustain like could I ever travel I just remember thinking like I am forever living paycheck to paycheck by whatever day job I'm getting I can't actually sustain anything. And I'm, am I going to do this forever? And I was seeing friends of mine, like go to Broadway and they'd book huge Broadway shows and we'd all, you know, go out and celebrate and be like, oh my God, your life has changed forever. And then three months later, the show would get canceled and they'd be back to cater waitering. And I was like, it's just like the roller coaster of that was just not, it was not meant for me. Yeah. I mean, I get that. I definitely had a very similar, you know, experience where I think like it, I saw so many of my friends like be so content with like the one guest star booking per year and I, and like everything else, their life was just built around waiting for those opportunities, like working, of course, being in classes, doing workshops, like being in the space. But I just felt so unfulfilled myself pursuing that and even watching them and some of my older friends that, you know, when I came out here and I was a part of a theater company and some people that were, you know, 10, 15, 20 years older than me and were still in that grind, like paying dues at a theater company to like perform, you know, and I just was like, I I love this to your point, but like, 
once I discovered producing, I felt so much more fulfilled by getting to be a part of the process and seeing like how the sausage gets made. And it just felt like the, the one aspect of acting, yes, it's like so important because ultimately it's kind of all people see of the process, right? Like if you have terrible actors, it doesn't matter how great the producing was behind the scenes, like no one cares. That is the, the face of the project, of the product. That's why when it works, they get all the glory, all the praise. But yeah, it was just for me, became very clear. Similarly, like if I fast forward to my life and I'm in my 40s and still in the same grind, like I will not be happy. And so I can't, I can't sign up for that, even though I like a, a casting director friend who turned was an actor who turned casting. She she said it best. She's like, I can love acting, but not want to be an actor. Mm-hmm. You know, that's exactly and that how really, I feel. Yeah. And that, yeah, exactly. It's like, I never fell out of love with it. Like I never stopped being like, oh, I hate acting. It was just like, I didn't want to be an actor. And that's, those are different things. Like acting and being an actor are totally different lives. Yeah. And and they're not really, and, and it's just about like whatever kind of person you are and whatever you enjoy. I mean, also meeting really successful actors, like the more successful actors I met, the more I realized how much I would, did not want to be an actor because I was like, oh, if that's the top, like that, I don't want that. Like I see yeah. women in their forties and fifties and they're like counting every calorie and they're like thinking about the way they're aging in such an intense way and their hair. And like, it was just this, it was just very um, materialistic way of life. And it was just like, so not interesting to me. Like the idea of yeah. aging into that sounded horrifying. And so yeah. I just, the more I was around it, the more I was like, oh, all roads are like not leading here. So I have to like figure yeah. something else out. And so then is that when the opportunity to move out West and work with Felicity and William H. Macy came up? I, I had moved before I worked with them. I had moved and I was still doing events actually in Los Angeles for a little bit, a little bit just to like make money and like try to, you know, uh, meet people and stuff. And I acted in LA, like I did comedy in LA for a long time, not a long time, a couple of years. And all of that was like, maybe I want to act still, but I also like interned at a casting office and I interned at a production office and I interned at like all these places. I was like an old intern, but I did it because I was like, I want to know all the other departments so I can understand if I really like them before I spend more time doing it. And then, yeah. And then I got offered the job with Bill and Felicity because they uh, started the Atlantic theater company, which is Mm -hmm. where I went to school and I got connected from a teacher there and I had met them a few times. Um, And I had thought about going to grad school. I had applied for USC producing grad school because I was like, maybe I'll be a producer. Pause though. At what point did you were you exposed to a producer in a way, like even though your mom had been a producer, right? Like, did you have other producer examples? No, I think I thought I could go to grad school and I knew I didn't want to go for acting because I'd already done the acting track. And I did not think that I ever wanted to be a director. I just never had that calling or like instinct. Mm-hmm. Me, I was like, maybe I'll learn a skill. Like, I didn't know if I wanted to be a producer, but I was like, maybe I should go and learn production and maybe I'll find something within production that I will enjoy. And maybe it's not a producer who knows, but like I should apply to grad school and figure it out. And then instead I got offered the job with Bill and Felicity. And I was like, well, instead of getting more in debt for college, and not knowing what I'm doing, maybe I should just like work with them for a year as whatever assistant role I could get and just kind of learn the business of Los Angeles and see if I could understand any of it because I'd been in New York and like theater world for so long. And so then basically that's, I took the job and, and decided not to go to school, mainly to save money, but also because I was like, yeah. I don't know yet. And like, why do I want to keep going to school? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And do you feel like that was the right choice looking back? Oh, totally. Yeah definitely the right choice. I mean, it like, yeah, yeah. I taught me everything I needed to know in such a short amount of time so quickly. Like what? 
And it solidified exactly what I said earlier about like meeting successful actors and what the lifestyle was seeing what their day-to-day was I was like okay like this isn't for me and they like they had a really good life they had like lovely home and kids and like everything but I was not interested in the like waiting for the next tv show to come along or like whatever that looked like and so mm-hmm. that taught me that it also just taught me the world of like the agencies I did not know I knew nothing about how production companies work, how film financing works, how independent film works. And at the time, Bill Macy was just starting to direct. And so he was doing this movie called Rudderless. And I was kind of jumping on like the end of that bandwagon. Um, and he, it was like a very indie film. It went to Sundance. He, he was like kind of dipping into this world of directing. And part of the sell that he made to me was he was like, you know, maybe you want to be a producer. You're still figuring it out. Why don't you come work for me and like, see if you like it because I'm going to keep directing films. And I was like, okay, Mm. like that sounds good. So that was like part of the deal. He was like, I'm starting a company. Like you could be a part of that. We can kind of like grow together. And he was such a theater guy in general. I was like, well, we speak the same language. It's all kind of the same stuff. And he, you know, so that's, that's basically why I took it and started doing it. Did you end up having opportunities while with them to produce? Yeah. I mean, Bill gave me my first credit. So he did Mm. a movie called The Layover which was a movie in um, I think Vancouver. And that was the first movie I was like really a part of with him. And I think I got like an associate producer credit on that or something. And it was fun. It was interesting. It's like, uh, yeah, I learned a lot from it. Like, I don't know how, how much I look back on that time. I know, I know things I wouldn't do. Like I learned that (laughs) from some of the experience. Yeah. It was very valuable. Um, And then he did a movie immediately after um called crystal and that one he was like he was like come and like he was like you can be like my person my like right hand and he kept calling it like producer and now I look back on it I'm like I don't know if he knew what he was offering (laughs) like he kept being like you'll be my producer and I was like what does a producer do and he was like I don't know he just like you know agree with me like it'll be fun He was like, producer, yeah, he's like, you know, direct, yeah, he's like, directors have producers. And I, I was like, okay. And I was an assistant and I basically did the role of an assistant, but he was very kind and he taught me everything. And I met the producers on that movie. This woman named Rachel Winter, who did Dallas Buyers yes. Club. And who has been on the podcast, previous podcast guest. I met Rachel Winter and Rachel Winter um, was very much like a mentor at that time. And she just saw that I was really drawn to it. And I had told her my my hopes of learning and she very quickly her and will greenfield who yes. you know as well who is a an ep on euphoria now um they both just kind of i don't know they both just uh let me follow them around and like learn as much as i could and so will was on crystal that's how you guys met yeah oh, wow he, he I didn't was know the that. line producer on crystal <laughs> and i remember the first time i met him he literally called me i think i've told you this before but he called me and he was like like, I see your name. There's nothing on your IMDb. Like, what, what are you doing with your life? What's going on? And I was just like, oh, I don't know. Like, I just immediately was panicking. I was like, I'm just coming to do this movie. And he was like, who do you want to be like? Who are your, you know, inspirations? What kind of producer do you want to be? And he's like, oh, I have no idea. Um, so, yeah, he was he was very helpful and Rachel were helpful. And and then that was kind of the movie that very much solidified to me that I was like, I, I am so meant to be in that lane. At that time, how would you have defined a producer? And how has it evolved now? What because this was what ten years ago? Yeah, yeah, a decade ago. Yeah, about. Um, I mean, at that time, I think I saw that a producer was the person who just carried the whole thing on their back and was just kind of managing it from from a distance and from close up. And the producer was the one that studied the script, but also was the one that handled 
every little minutia thing of hiring every crew, every person who's a part of the film, the feeling of the film, um, how the money is spent, how the money is not spent. Like I, I could kind of see that from the outside. I think I didn't, I did not understand the complexities of producing at that time. <laughs> I saw it from a very shiny position of just me watching other people do it. So at that time, a general idea of what I thought. And I remember thinking like, oh, well, I'm good with talent because I came from that world and I'm good with organization and delivery because I was a wedding planner and I'm good at creativity and having a sense of like story because I studied that. And so like all of these things combined created what I saw very clearly was meant to be the producer. So yeah, I love how like, you know, sometimes the things that when we look back may seem like detours uh, in in the path, right, often are the things that actually give you the tools that when everything kind of clicks, it's like, had you not had that season of your life as a wedding planner, who knows, not that you wouldn't have found producing, maybe just it would have taken you a little longer, different pathway to get there. And I, I always, I always love that. Yeah. Or you wouldn't have learned it as quickly. I mean, yeah. I was 22 because I was a wedding planner. I knew Excel spreadsheets. Like, why did it, why would I have known how to use Excel that thoroughly in a budget format without having a wedding? Yeah. I think even little things like that were just helpful whenever I started doing it on a smaller scale. Cause I was like, Oh, I know how to manage a budget. Like I know how to do invoices. I know how to pay people. Yeah. It all made sense to me. So for sure. At this point, were you already doing like commercials and shorts and kind of getting your hands on whatever you could? No, I was full time at bill and Felicity. And I, I started doing shorts right after that. I mean, up until that point, I had not done anything on my own. And then Bill Macy basically was like uh, thinking of going to Sundance and South by, and he ended up not going those years, but he had a pass from Showtime. And so I asked him if I could have the pass and I would fly myself down and put myself up and just go and attend. And like, at the time he was like, maybe looking for new scripts. And I was like, I'll go scout and like meet people. And I will say he was so supportive of just like, yeah, like if that helps you go do it. So I, I did that. And I remember going and I just would watch shorts at all the short blocks and I would just kind of meet filmmakers afterwards and and talk about their shorts. And I was just drawn to people very quickly. And I was like, if you're ever doing another short, like I'll work for free on it and I'll do it. Um, yeah, I, I made like, I don't even know, like nine shorts that year or something out of filmmakers from those festivals, just that I had like yeah. hung out with on the weekends while I was doing the Bill Macy job. So were any of those Celine Logan, Celine and Logan? Two of Celine and Logan's that year. Um, we did Caroline and we did Lockdown. That's incredible. Yeah. Very, very close together. And Caroline, I really got because I met Selena Logan and they were like, we're doing this short in Texas. And I was like, I'm from Texas. I can get all the resources. And like we did, like my parents catered it. And like we <laughs> we literally slept in my parents' RV in a parking lot <laughs> while we were filming. Um, and I borrowed people's cars and trucks. And a lot of the people in the background of that short film are like, friends from high school or cousins or like very strange people who I brought in. Um, And that was the first time that I worked with them. So yeah, it's a really impressive short. Is it something we can share? Do you guys on Vimeo? You can totally find it. Yeah, I'll I'll definitely want to post it because it's it's a really incredible short. And it was like shortlisted for the Oscars, right? That year? What was it? 2018. Mm -hmm. That short was great. I mean, it was a cool collaboration. I was definitely learning on the job. <laughs> I kind of knew what I was doing. And- yeah. I mean, that's it. You know, like 
a lot of us, even people that I've had on the show that have gone to like the AFIs or the USCs, there's still so much of that aspect of it that is apprenticeship. That's why when people hit me up on, you know, Instagram or whatever now, young up and coming producers, and they're like, I want to be a producer. It's like, then just go make shit, like go create, go learn, go mess up, go make all the mistakes. And like, hopefully none of them are fatal. <laughs> and hopefully like not, you know, you, you still can like grow with people that you're working with. But I think your story is such a reminder of like this idea of like networking across, right? Like you didn't go to Sundance with like, oh, let me go talk to the filmmaker who won Sundance. You were looking at the shorts, you were looking at, and I don't know, was that intentional on your part? Do you think? Totally. Yeah. I mean, I just knew that like, I didn't know anything. So in my mind, I was like, yeah, I was like, I'm going to go find the cool people who are making stuff that, you know, I, I think I could help them make something else. Like I'm not going to be, I'm going to be able to like raise financing. I didn't know how to do any of that yet. So at the time, yeah, it was very intentional to say like, I think it was probably 2016 or so when I went and like, that was, yeah, those, those were the years that I was just like, I just want to go meet people who are making stuff that feels like it has a purpose and a story and are driven. And like, I will work for free for those people. And I do think I shortcut, I mean, a lot of people who reach out or like I talk to in life, they'll be like, I've done all these shorts and they're all really bad. And it's like, well, because they were probably their first short and people are learning. Right. Didn't mean to, but inherently I did skip that step. Like people who had successful shorts at film festivals, right? literally picked them out of a bunch and were like, these are the five I like, I'm going to work with those five. And then like worked with them, which is not to say like, I know a lot of people who are at AFI and stuff. They're just like, I made the short with my classmate and it's terrible honestly didn't have to make that many bad ones to be honest to right like learn that right much. yeah you kind of were able to like intersect with filmmakers who already had gotten all of those 10 or five horrible shorts that never saw the light of day it's part of the evolution of finding your voice you know it makes like, a good short first and if you do it's like probably just like luck exactly so yeah I mean, and then can you duplicate that yeah, selena logan this was their third short by the time i had worked right. with them and they had made right. two really good ones but like they progressively were getting better and so i was kind of coming in the middle of their you know, their climb and what they were doing. So it just made easy, it made yeah. it easier. Well, so you end up working with like nine different filmmakers at that time making shorts, but clearly you have become really close collaborator now with Celine Logan. Like you guys went on and did uh, Topside and now you guys like within five years, really, if you think about it from when you guys met, it sounds like, you know, you, you've done two features with them and one was like such a level up to go from Topside to, to Cato or what's the official title now? That's a no. good question. <laughs> TBD. TBD, but the, the movie with M. Night Shyamalan, which is like, you know, t- and I thought I think that's interesting because it's like you were betting on yourself, but you were also betting on these filmmakers working for free. And I know there's a lot of independent producers like yourself who invest a lot of their time, their sweat equity, their resources, everything of themselves into these creative uh, partnerships. And oftentimes you get people to be at that stage where they go do an M. Night film and then the next thing you know, they're doing a Marvel movie and it's like, well, you kind of helped propel put them up there and sometimes you don't get to go off for the next part of that ride um, once the bigs come calling and I know you and I have talked a lot about that over a lot of wine and how you know uh, that sucks but I think for people who are starting and or are are, you know a couple years into their producing journey especially on the independent side I think that's such a great like example you know to look at how you were able to really build that for yourself and and have those relationships. So two parts to to this question is one, what was it about them, I guess, that you guys kept working together and maybe some of these other filmmakers, you know, not that they fell off to the wayside, but 
there's only so much time that we all have and you guys seem to really click. And what is it that makes you be able to collaborate with um, with the same artist time and time again? Like, what is it that you look for, you know, that makes you go, yeah, this is this is a match for me? Yeah, I mean, out of those shorts, what I will say is like some of those people don't direct anymore because they just realized it wasn't for them. Maybe it was a lifestyle or I don't know. But some of them we worked together and we were not a match. Like we worked mm-hmm. very differently and we we felt very differently about the creative process and the process of making a film and treatment of crew and like all, all of these things that kind of came up during those times. So, you know, I, I always call it dating. Like you date directors for a while, then you kind of get married to them. And I think shorts are really dating and it's kind of mm-hmm. the best way to get to know someone. So I got really lucky that I knew Selena Logan so well by the time we made our first feature. I mean, we had made we made two shorts together that were both very successful. And then we had a third one that was just kind of like this fun, wild ride where four of us went to Iceland and filmed a sex doll traveling on a, or we went to London and filmed a sex doll traveling back on a plane, like docu style on our phones. Like it was very fun topic was like topic paid for it and put it out. It was just wild. And so we all had such a language by the time we got to topside that I was like, Oh no, I know how we all work now. And like, we have such a system in place. Um, so that kind of organically happened because we just kept working together. Whereas maybe some other filmmakers, we just didn't have that opportunity again. Yeah. You know, there were filmmakers within that bunch that I did their short and their feature came along and I didn't creatively like wasn't called to it. I didn't feel um, like I needed to be a part of the story in the feature version or vice versa. Like they had other partners intended and I felt like crowded or I felt like maybe I wasn't needed. So I would either step off or, you know, we'd have a conversation. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I don't know how I would say, like, I think what I, I think the second part of the question of like, how do you find people or like, no, I don't know if you do. I mean, Selena Logan are the most loyal directors I've ever met. They are incredibly loyal people and they, continue to bring me on to things and we also are just friends like we're all very good friends my husband shoots their stuff so it's it's a weird um double couple <laughs> just kind of strange <laughs> um and and in that wonderful like friendship we talk about projects like Cato, if we're calling it that right now um that project is one that over covid i think i called them and was just like we have to write something that we could do during covid that can be like really small and like we can do it at my parents house in texas and film it and lol has a camera and we'll just like make it really tiny and they were like okay and then they wrote this movie that's like helicopters and boats and like fires <laughs> and i was just like okay not what i meant but like this this works too like this is in a lake yeah in a lake uh, with children <laughs> it's just like all of the things they added to it and then you know we just got lucky with with that one and who read it and how it was found and it just kind of moved on and I try to consider myself with most of my directors true partners in like a marriage sense I don't really want to ever be known as someone who's just like a one-off I really try to find people who I can grow with my directors I've done projects with I have said to them at one time or another if I love working with them like my intention of doing this project is that we do the next 10 together and we grow old making movies together. And like, if you want that too, like marry me and like, let's do it. And sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. And like, that's okay. Like I've seen wonderful relationships where I haven't been carried on and I don't take it personal. I take it as a, you know, a way the system works and especially like the film world and the rules behind it. So I just kind of take it with a grain of salt, but the ones I get to keep, I'm very selfish of. So yeah. Yeah, of course. And I think that's important too, because oftentimes this idea of like, Oh, I just need a producer. I just need a this. And people don't think to really make sure that there is that, that 
connection, like as humans, like, you know, that you're really being additive to that collaborative process. And I, I find that when people have had bad experiences with producers when they're starting out, like that, I, that's what I wonder. I'm like, oh, was this just not a good match then? I mean, of course, everyone's learning when you're starting out. So who the fuck knows? But like, the time it takes to find your people is something that isn't often talked about um, in a lot of these interviews, or you go watch the film that got made and like, the, you're at the Q&A. And I, I always... Coming up, I was always really resentful that I felt like there was information people were keeping from me about how they actually got there, you know, because it's like, yeah, we just met each other. It's like, okay, but how long ago did you meet each other? You know what I mean? Like, these these are deep relationships that people often have, and then they just like decide to just make a thing. And then that thing becomes a, a big thing, you know, for me, it took me like, I wouldn't say like five years of my LA journey before I felt like I found true collaborators, mentors, especially when I switched more into the producing, who were willing to open open up, you know, let me look under the hood and learn how these things were made. That's the part that's so draining is you just have to keep going until you find those people that like, it's like a, a frequency, you know, like, finally, it clicks for you. I um, mean, when you're disconnected, I think it's already hard enough. And that's, I think, when you can maybe create things that aren't as um, rewarding. And maybe regardless of the product, the journey itself wasn't that rewarding and people have bad experiences, you know, so. I mean, I do think it comes down to the filmmaker yeah. to throw directors under the bus, but like a lot of directors will be like, I had no choice. I couldn't bring my producer. And it's like, as the producer, I think that's probably true on Marvel. And I think anything that is not Marvel is probably not true. And it's not yeah. even probably, like, I know it's not true. Right. Is that the director has... They are too afraid because they're also working towards something that is their life dream and their goal. And they're also getting to these levels of like A24 comes calling or whoever. And they're like, I suggested my person once. And then they said, no, we should use this other person. And I didn't push back. And it's like, right. there, there is a moment though. Like there's always a moment where each company, because I've been on the calls when I've been on projects, there's a moment where the company is like, yeah, we like them, but they don't have the experience or you know, we love this other producer who we've done this other movie with, like, we should really meet with them. And the director always has a choice to say, like, no, this is my person. This is who creatively aligns with me and is a part of my artistic journey. And like, my work would not be the same without them. And that affects my work. So like, if you want to make my work, I have to have them there. Yeah. Don't say that. They're just kind of like, okay, yeah, whoever that other producer is, let's do it. And then sometimes I find it fascinating because I hear of people after they've made their second or third movie being like, I just don't have my person. And it's like, well, you might have in the first movie, but you kind of gave them up. <laughs> like, you, you know what I mean? Like, and they've moved on and like you left them for someone better. And then now like that person who's better doesn't have time for you. And they're not like yeah. as interested. And I, I mean, again, like I will credit to Selena Logan very much. Like they have always been people who've been like hair is a part of our journey. And so I've been invited in a very kind way to do that. And I have other directors who do that as well. I'm working with one right now that I'm here with who's like kept me along for this whole crazy ride, the film that I'm filming right now. And yeah, she's been, she's been incredibly uh, valuable and just wonderful in every meeting being like Kara is the person who's going to be there with me. Yeah. And that just doesn't happen a lot. <laughs> it's just like, it's it is the loyalty, rare. right? It's rare, but it's like, why is it so hard to have each other's backs? It's, it's a two way street. Like if you have your director's back, they have your back, then everybody makes a better project I believe but also the journey is so much sweeter because you're not spending all this time like filmmakers often who like you have not had that experience of a good marriage will will worry that a producer is just out to get them you know and they're just out to be no men and whatever no 
It's all fear. And it's all based it's fear. on fear. Exactly. And I think I'm on a mission to eradicate that and, and help remind people that when you can choose a path of love, as cheesy as it sounds, one, it's just more rewarding because it's already so hard, you know, that at least like regardless of the outcome, like you're you're growing with people and humans that like you w- genuinely want to be around. I, I really am optimistic for more and more of that. So so then you spent a lot of time working with a bunch of different filmmakers. What was the first project that you were capital P producer and you wore the big hat and you had the big girl pants and you were like, I'm a producer. I've arrived. Oh God. I don't know if I still feel. <laughs> I don't know if I've had it yet. Um, I mean, Topside was my first movie that I was like, I put this together. Like I built it from the ground up with the directors Um, I didn't know what I was doing. I wasted a lot of time and made a lot of mistakes, but it was definitely the movie that like, I ended up having producing partners that came in kind of the last minute. Um, and they were lovely partners and they were good people, but I definitely got on set and there was a sense of like, uh, I think ownership for me that was maybe hopefully not in a negative way, but I definitely was like, I have been here through every version of this script. I have talked to every company. I have, (laughs) have been in every casting meeting, like I deserve to be here. I want my name on this film, even if it's like in the worst position with the worst money. Like I, I am, I am, you know, the person who we would not be here without my name being a part of it in some way. And so I think Topside was probably like the first, first one that I felt that kind yeah. of ownership over, to be honest. Yeah. So then after Topside, what comes up next for you? I mean, I got really lucky. So when I was doing the shorts, all of them, I had a couple that did well and I started meeting filmmakers and I met, um, I met this manager, Christina Campagnola, who's really amazing and very fun. And I remember Mm -hmm. we were like at a festival and she was like, filmmakers, do you want to meet? And I was like, I want to meet, um, like the quirkiest, weirdest people who also have like the most grounded, natural sense of humor. And she was like, I have a perfect couple for you. (laughs) And she introduced me to Alex Fisher and Eleanor Wilson, who did Save Yourselves. Yeah. We all met. And I remember Alex actually pitched me like a way bigger movie that he was setting up at the time. And I read it and I was like, I love this. I would never in a million years know what to do with this because I don't know how to do that yet. Um, so I I couldn't do it because it was just too big. But I was like, but if you have anything small, like ever, let me know. And he was like, well, we wrote this other movie called Save Yourselves. Like, if you just want to read it, you know, it's fun. And I read it and it was like the first movie I'd ever like laughed out loud. I just remember <laughs> like being so happy reading it and being like, it feels so fresh and so young and cool. And they had kind of already started the system of meetings And so I basically joined in and helped them start meeting people and doing these kind of conversations. And then it realized very quickly, like I was their producer. We had a really good marriage. Um, And then that money came together within like six months. Like I remember I went to Sundance that year and was raising money at Sundance, meeting investors. And I met investors who put money into it. You mentioned that like financing and all that was sort of new to you not long previous. So how did you learn it? Talk about that. I learned it by making horrible mistakes. Um, so I went to IFP, which is an amazing program. And now it's called Gotham Week. Um, but you meet companies and you kind of pitch your project. And it's, it's like a little mm-hmm. bit like Shark Tank where you're just like, mm-hmm. hi, sharks. Like, I have a movie. There's <laughs> no cast. And like, and you basically, we we pitched it. Um, and we had this company that I, I will not name because it is bad juju, but they immediately were like, yes, we're going to give you all of the money. And we all remember me and Selena Logan were like, whoa, like, that's amazing. That's how it works. You just, someone gives you millions of dollars. Like we (laughs) skipped, I remember we like cheers and skipped down the street in Brooklyn and we were so happy and we left. And then we spent about six months realizing that they were not real and the money was not real. 
And we learned it the hard way, mainly from WME kind of helping us and coaching us and teaching us about the companies and that this one was a new company. And we had all the faith in the world that they were going to work out. And then I, I remember getting the first kind of warning signs when they were asking me to put charges of stuff on my credit card, like a scout. Mm, we were all going to go no, scout. No. It was a no-no, listeners. <laughs> it was a no-no. And I, they were like, yeah, they're like, our money's tied up in the UK and we can't get it, but we'll transfer it to you later this week. Oh. And I was, was completely broke. And they were like, could you cover the cost of this scout? We're going to all fly in from the UK and we're going to meet you there. And we're going to have this scout at this location. And I was, I'd already like not gotten some things paid. Like the casting director was like, what's going on with the money? And it didn't come through. And it was just weird. Mm. So I made a mistake and I put it on my credit card. Um, it was like $10,000, I think. Oof. And we went to the scout. We had a great time and we left. And I want to say like a few weeks after I just like was still not getting paid. And like every day it was like, oh, a wire is held up. Um, there's a mistake with the money. And then I get a call from the owner and was like, we, we definitely have the money. And I just kind of started panicking. And then the casting director at the same time was like, I haven't been paid. And just a lot of people who we kind of started collecting these bills, they, they were hiring because they were the company paying for it. Mm. I just saw that it was like bad news. And, and we called WME and we, we got out of it with them. And we started just pitching aggressively because we were like, at this point, we've cast the child. We have the location. We are so close we have to make this movie. And so we just started pitching to everyone who would help us. Um, and we met like three companies who were all really amazing and known in the industry. And they all kind of came together and put their money together. And then to wow. be honest, those three financiers were financing a lot of indie films at the time. Um, K period, red crown and level forward. And I just became friends with all of them. Cause they're all like very cool people. And they were all on set and we all became buds. And then those three people I would send new movies to. And then some of them would do some of them. Um, K period, I did Cata with right after and kind of form those relationships. And then those relationships give you three other financiers. It's like a pyramid. Right. It's like they give you three friends who are also financiers. And then you make three more from them. And then you just kind of keep doing it. And then at the end of the day, you're like, wow, I know all the 40 companies who finance movies. Yeah. And I like them. And here's who I'd want to work with, or here's what kind of work they're doing and what I have makes sense for them or not. So. Yeah. Super, super smart. And so then um, at what point when, when we intersected, which was May of last year, almost a year ago, in fact, to the date, when was when was our, uh, like, I believe that this was like around the, the week that I was moving out to Atlanta, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I was thinking about that, that we were starting that movie a year from now, which is kind of insane, given where we are with that movie right now. It's, crazy, it's only right? been a year. <laughs> It's actually like bananas. It's crazy. It's so yeah. wild. Yeah. Here we go. Honk for Jesus. May 17th, we had a production meeting. Wow. So it was around this time because we started shooting in June. Yeah. When we intersect, so, t you know, take us back to now it's, we're a year into the pandemic, a year and some change into the pandemic. Obviously, huge halt into all the things. And then was Honk the first thing that kind of bubbled up production wise for you? No, it was very odd. I mean, I did a show. I did a show called Action Royale during the pandemic, which was kind of fun. That's right. it, was, it was in LA. It was Snapchat, which was wild. I had never done a Snapchat show. And I just loved the showrunner. He's a really good friend of mine and he had written it. And I just, the idea of working in Los Angeles long-term during the pandemic and not traveling sounded really enticing to yeah. me. 
Um, and I had a few movies that were set up that had fallen apart. And so it just kind of all like roads kind of led to it and, and made sense. But I had a movie that was going to be going in April of last year. And it's the movie I'm on right now. Um, and that movie was happening with a different company. And when the pandemic was like booming, the, basically the production companies that were going to pay for it backed out and they were just like, we can't risk it. We don't know if we want to do it anymore. And I was devastated because I had worked, I don't know, two or three years probably to put this movie together. And it had many lives and many iterations. And, and it was really heartbreaking. And I remember like crying in my backyard being like, you know, this is the, this is the one that like, I can never let drop. And so um, it was a hard moment. And then I remember like a week or two after that movie fell apart, I got a phone call from Rowan Riley and Rowan, um, who is also a producer in Hong for Jesus called me and she was like, I got your name from a friend. We had a bunch of mutual friends. And, and to be honest, Hong was kind of an odd one for me. Like I had never jumped on so late. I had always been on pretty early and I had helped kind of build the machine. And for Hong, it was a little different because Rowan had really been the one who had built it from the beginning. And then Rowan was like, I don't know if I can go. I have a full-time job. I am, am hoping I go, but I don't know. And we don't have financing yet, but we might. Um, and can you just help me like take it over um, and be a partner? So I was like, sure. So I met the twins. We had a great call. We kind of talked about the film in general. And then quickly after we made a budget and kind of put uh, the final cast together and everything had kind of come together really quickly. Um, this is probably like March, I guess, um, before we met. Um, February, March. And so during those months, I was like, I don't know if this movie's going to go. Like, we'll see. Like, I hope it does because it's so fun. And it's such a great cast. But the whole time I was just kind of helping them under the guise of like, we'll see what happens. And then basically we got financing um, in the strangest way, like a brand new production company called Pinky Promise, who had never financed a movie, uh, had met UTA weeks before and UTA put them together and we all had a big meeting and everyone hit it off and they were just like, yeah, let's do it. And then like literally three weeks later, I was looking for you. I was looking for everyone on the crew <laughs> to come and join. Um, and I just kind of started like building, building the machine fully from there. Yeah. I remember when we met, you were like, Hey, Atlanta's going to suck, but you want to come make a movie with me? <laughs> I was like, that's the best pitch I've ever heard. She's <laughs> like, we probably won't get any crew and the budget's really tiny, but it'll be fun. I'll be that there. literally <laughs> sounds like me pitching everything. I'm just like, but I'm funny and we'll enjoy each other and that'll be yeah, great. <laughs> I'll be there. Um, and I know there's a quote where you said, and I quote, I think I'm fun to work with. Hopefully people find me fun to work with. I'm a great time. <laughs> I don't know where this please make that my quote on everything moving forward. I'm a great time. She's a great time. But uh, it's true. But no, it was it was a really incredible call to get because I had reached out to Miss Cara Durant a year prior to invite her to be on my podcast. And we were going to and then pandemic kind of hit whatever it just wasn't the right time. But what was so funny is that I was on set when you called me for something else in LA. And when I saw Kara Durrett was calling me, my first thought was like, oh, I guess she's like, wants to be on the podcast. Like, that's what I thought. Like, what, a, what an idiot. And then you left me this lovely voicemail and, you know, about this film and then I read it. And then I started to panic because I already had the uh, color creative gig sort of lined up. I was supposed to start in May and I was like, well, I obviously can't do both. Like, I remember would... aggressively trying to convince you to not do it yet. <laughs> I was like, yeah. tell them you need more time. I know. And I was like, well, gosh, like who, nobody, like that's really ridiculous. Like, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Like I can't have the best of both worlds. Like that would be too good to be true. But if there's one thing I've learned in my career, 
and I advise this to, you know, anyone listening, it's like, it doesn't hurt to ask, and you can't blame a gal for asking. <laughs> and so I was, oh, I was like, hey, all good, so committed to Color Creative, but I spoke to the team, and I was like, if there's any world where I can pop off to Atlanta, make this dope movie, come back and start in August, like, that would be so swell, you know? And it just worked out that it... Then you were like, I'm a good time, I'm fun. I was like, I'm a really good time, I'm really fun to work with. But no, it was actually, like, the pitch, too, where it was like, I have never shot in Atlanta, and for me to bring this experience in-house is actually really fruitful for us. And so it was a really kismet thing because the short of uh, Hong for Jesus had been on Issa's short film Sundays. And so there was a lot of like synergy around that particular project. I do think that if it had been, to be honest, you know, a a story about a white dude doing something, I don't think they would have been as enthusiastic, but I think they saw the value. One of the things I love about Color Creative is there's this MO of like, um, what is the saying that I always fuck up? It's like the tides rise all ships or whatever. Mm-hmm. you know, me going off and making this movie and me being successful in whatever iteration of that, even if it's just to get that experience is helpful for them as well. And then obviously with the sort of remarkable uh, sort of release that it had at Sundance and getting picked up by Monkey Paw and Focus, et cetera, like it's, it raises our profile, you know what I mean? Like everything helps each other. And so it's like, why not? And so but no, I like it was a really incredible experience, really hard uh, for sure. But like, I just loved getting to live in Atlanta for a couple of months and getting to be a part of making this movie with you and being a part of Pinky's first project, too. I think that was a really cool experience to like be so close to the ground of like watching finance, new financiers kind of find their footing and how they need to exist in that ecosystem, which is so delicate. Um I think one of the things we talked a lot about is like, you know, when you have the financiers on set and they're at monitor and what that creates for the filmmakers. And like, it's like, we get it. It's their money. But like, it's a really sensitive a hard that- balance for sure. It's hard because if you're giving money to film, you, are, you have to be creatively inclined. Like no one is giving money to film being like, I hate movies. It's like, they are obviously interested in the craft. That's why they're giving right. money. And so yeah. it's a hard thing to be like, I know you are so interested in this and maybe even have a skill in this or like a background in this. But right now it's putting too much pressure on this person who it's their first movie to have yeah. the person who is writing the check to them, standing <laughs> over them, telling them, do you like that shot? Why do you like that shot? It just, it causes a different conversation in their head. And that is, that's a tricky, it's a tricky balance. Yeah. What do you think is one thing that, since you've worked a lot with first-time filmmakers, like first-time directors um, on their first features, feature films, like what is one thing that you've seen time and time again them do well that you think sets them up for success? Um, I mean, not all of them, but most of them, I will say who prepare well, who like really spend the years or months while you're waiting for money to use the time wisely and prepare, the more prepared you are, you don't know so much. Like you are so in the dark on so many things because you've never been on a set. Like uh, my husband reminded me of this because he's a cinematographer, but like he reminded me that he was like, it is weird sometimes being on movies with first time directors because everyone on the crew has more experience than them, except for them. Like they have the least experience of anyone and they are also the boss. Right. Even the PAs have like years experience of being on a set with them. Um, (laughs) And so it's, it's kind of funny sometimes to think about that because it's true. Like there are just so many things they don't know and that they, they have to kind of learn whenever they're doing it. So Preparation is probably the biggest thing. I mean, it's also fun. Like I, I like first time directors because sometimes there is a little bit of a, 
there's no rules because they don't know them. So they'll kind of throw something out and your, your immediate reaction might be like, we can't do that. And then you kind of step back and you're like, well, why can't we do that? Like, of course we could. That makes sense. Like, let's just try it. Whereas people who are more experienced might be a little bit more like, well, I know we can't do this, so I'm not even going to suggest it. And they kind of go back to old ways. So there's a bit of like fun and spontaneity to that probably. Yeah, for sure. Talk a little bit about some of the the challenges of making honk for you, some of the maybe growth, the learnings, and maybe the most rewarding parts of it, aside from working with me and, you know, almost getting towed when you came to work at my building that one time. <laughs> Your building, I got towed. Um, <laughs> no, I think honk was a really fascinating learning experience because I have never worked with, it was my first director, is a person of color, the story is about a person of color. The conversation around community is around people of color, a person of color, I'm I'm white. So that was one that I really tried to take the opportunity to learn as much as I could, because there were so many times creatively that I'd be like, this would be funny, or that would be funny. And and we would all have this conversation in the room about like, well, culturally, what does that mean? Or um, is it funny? And, And the version of this film that we're trying to make or whatever we're audience we're trying to reach. And that was something that I wouldn't say challenging in a bad way. It was kind of challenging in a fun way. It was a new Mm -hmm. perspective. It was like something that I had not um, come up against so much. Yeah. It was like, sometimes I really tried to just listen as much as I could in the room, especially with like creative notes. Um, I tried not to push too much because I I kind of realized that like my voice was definitely not the most important one. Um, So yeah, I think that was probably one of the, one of the challenges that yeah. and crew <laughs> and crew was really hard. Crew was rough. Yeah. Making an indie in Atlanta is not recommended. <laughs> I mean, everyone told us, like everyone told us before we went, it was going to be hard. And it just, it's just different because people there just don't work in that way. It's not like New yeah. York. It's not like LA. There are no crews there that exist in this space of just like, we're going to make an indie and it's going to be fun. They yeah. live in this Marvel space and they live in yeah. these like, huge shows And so when they show up to our rinky dink shows and they're just so confused by the way everything works, like our breakfast where it's just like there became, I mean, you knew this more than anyone because you were really the one hand so hands-on with crew of just the the requests that they would have that you'd be like, we couldn't even do that if we wanted to. Like, that's just so out of reach for us and the scale that we are. And that was just, and then, and it felt like everyone sometimes is doing us a favor and that's what made it really hard. What I walked away from that with is that people who move to LA, New York, to these markets to pursue this industry, they're pursuing a dream. There's a passion. There's years of grinding it out before you get to be on a union set, et cetera. And so it's, it's really about the the bit you're built it's about the relationships you're building whereas in these other markets that are sort of new it's just about a job it's just a job and if your job doesn't pay me what i more worth and what i think i deserve then i just won't do your job they don't look at it as an investment in these filmmakers like especially with the evos which i find interesting because they're from atlanta like they're going to be returning probably and maybe putting their first tv show there right so if i was a crew member especially a department head i would think well i want to invest in this relationship but it's interesting that most crew just don't have that perspective. And if there's one thing I learned is you can't change people, you can't make them into a version of themselves, they're never going to be. And so I think that was the hardest part is like this lack of loyalty to the process, but also like a laissez fairness about it all. You know, I remember even uh, our Saint Gwiz Allen, uh, who was our DPM burning his candle in, in our honor, just talking about like, even some of the the crew that worked for him that aren't 
necessarily as creative just him being like well what do you think like give me your ideas and they'd be like i don't know this is good you know like just whenever given the opportunity to exercise that creativity like people just didn't seem interested i definitely felt like i know i think you did too but I definitely felt like a lot of people came in with a chip on their shoulder and I was kind of like, yeah. why are you mad at me? Yeah. Like, we've never met. <laughs> like, I don't even know. I don't know who hurt you, but it wasn't me. And I'm so <laughs> sorry. Like uh-huh. I just, that conversation I felt like happened so often with people who would walk in and would be like, I want, I want this. And you'd be like, Oh, okay. Like, sure. Let's talk about it. But it was like, they'd come in so aggressive about it. And I think it's because Atlanta is such a grinded out town and a really highway like Tyler Perry studios and all these studios that are there. I think that they just pump work into that city and people are so used to working at such a high level, but also being paid so much that like they just could, they were like so aware of everything that was going to go wrong for them. Even though we had never done anything like that, we would all be like, no, no, no. Like we won't make you do that. That sounds crazy. They'd be yeah. like, yeah, because I won't. And you're like, but we're not asking. <laughs> you just got to right. keep going in that way. So yeah, it's crazy to think that with all of the challenges we had, we still made a successful movie during COVID without any shutdowns. Yes, we almost had like lightning strike and almost lost a full day. But even that we bounced back from. So I find it remarkable that the timeline of it and then to get us to even have that Sundance premiere. Like on the other side of all of that now picked up by Focus, obviously Monkey Pop, Peacock, like a lot of people listening. And when you see these headlines in the trades, a lot of filmmakers, especially on the indie side and producers look at that and go, wow, like that is the, 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 that is the goal, right? What has that actually been like for you now that you're like on the other side of it? I mean, I don't think I've gotten to see the, the award, like the reward yet because it hasn't released. Yeah. And that's always the best part when you get to see like other people actually get to see it, which is exciting. Yeah, yeah. Um, right now I'm in kind of like the worst part, which is when you sell it and you're delivering it (laughs) and every day you deliver (laughs) one new document to them and then they tell you it's wrong. And then you have to figure out why it's wrong and then (laughs) call a lawyer and walk through that document. And it's just like kind of a, a awful process of whenever you sell a film. So, um, we are, we are opening the cut right now and doing a few tweaks, nothing major because the, the edit was pretty amazing by our editors, but, Um, just things that we wish we would have had time to do before Sundance that we didn't. So right now we're in the middle of that. And then we basically will deliver it in the summer. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I've seen the good part yet. (laughs) I mean, I did see the good part of the sale at Sundance, but Sundance is also like, it's, it's fun to go. If you have a movie that is not being sold, if you have a movie that is being sold, it is like the most stressful experience because you are just constantly walking around with this, like dollar number above your head wondering am I going to make this back and give these people their money back and is my director going to be successful and is the movie going to be likable is it all going to be worth it is the years of my life going to be worth it and so you have this like I mean every time I go to Sundance I either break out in a rash or a hive or like (laughs) it's very stressful it's so stressful and people are telling you about tickets and you're like I don't even know who you are and you're getting these crazy voicemails in the middle of the night of people being like my granddaughter has to have a ticket and you're like who is that like I don't know who (laughs) this is even um so it's just it's a lot it's like a lot of stress and it's very emotional because just it's like a wedding. It's like everyone's most important day. It's like people are yeah. just at the at the level ten for the whole time. So the whole time, the whole yeah. Time. Well, anything that was really rewarding that you'll take away, or maybe maybe a, a lesson that you learned that you bring on to the next thing. Oh, I mean, so rewarding! Like, gosh, ca- the cast is like. I don't know. I mean, you know them now. Like, I think they're the coolest cast in the world. I think they're like truly the most lovely, smart, 
uh, comedic geniuses, like the way they played on set, the way the creatives yeah. actually did find humor in so much. Adama did did so so such a good job of kind of creating her home nostalgia of what she wanted out of it of this like world of Atlanta and you watch it and it's like you're right like it feels like Atlanta it feels like there is that world a part of it and that's such a yeah, hard yeah. thing to do so yeah I mean all all the good things that came out of it on top of the stressful but I mean you know it's a success story so it's really easy to be like that was great because we like made money on it <laughs> yeah it's it's really heartbreaking when you're not one of those lucky ones and it is a lottery it's like two percent of movies sell yeah. Sundance and that barely make money so when you're one of the lottery winners you just have to be so grateful because it's like yeah there's so many who are not so yeah no absolutely before we switch gears into talking all about some of the struggles I have I have a voice memo I want to play for you uh, because I asked I asked a man you may know uh, what makes a good producer and what it's like to be married to a producer oh my god hilarious. <laughs> My name is Lowell Meyer, and I am the happily married husband to your current guest on Angle on Producers, Kara Tourette. And I just happen to be a cinematographer, so I work with producers all the time. And I have to say that Kara is one of the best, and not just because I'm biased. I think what makes Kara, and any producer for that matter, <laughs> a good producer is you have to be a people person. You have to be able to deal with lots of different personalities from, you know, grumpy folks to aloof folks to just downright mean or people who don't know what they're doing. You have to deal with all those people and personalities and bring them all together and figure out how to make something great while also keeping, you know, your eye and your ears on a thousand different things. I think Kara is really good at making sure everyone can kind of do their work and not even know that there's a fire going on in the background and do that a thousand times a day with a smile on her face. Working with crew and talent and directors, all of those things are vital for any producer because you have to be able to, you know, navigate the, the egos of the day-to-day -day production and walk away with good footage and walk away with what will eventually become a good movie. You know, being married to a producer can be <laughs> tricky because she's a very busy lady and I can also be a very busy guy. So, you know, just finding the time to be together as well as deal with all our own stuff in our own personal life, like our responsibilities with our dogs or our house or whatever, you know, it can all be a little tricky, but I think a fun perk of her job is that, you know, she's the boss and that comes with some certain privileges. The last movie we worked on together, we both had to have dog doggy daycare kind of set up for two pugs. And because she was a producer, she could sort of, you know, once she got close to the lead actor, could sort of figure out a way to keep them in his trailer. Um, he Why also is he had telling dog, you so that? Sort of worked out that all the dogs would hang out in his trailer. Oh, my um, God. But what was funny is we were all at lunch one day, you know, working on some sort of logistical problem in the schedule. And we turn our heads and look through the catering tent and we see the lead actor who's this, you know, famous guy walking our two dogs. And that's just something that most crew members don't have the luxury of doing. And 
because Kara is a smooth talker. Oh my and, god! Uh, a people person, <laughs> she can make those things happen and make our life work outside Hilarious. of work. She's great. You're gonna love this episode, <laughs> folks. Get ready to get schooled on what it is to be a great producer. Oh my <laughs> god! That is the most lull message I've ever heard because it's 45 minutes long. It goes and into, I edited it down. That, oh I, that was my it, cut down. Yeah. If you've ever seen a, an email or a voicemail from Lowell, they are years long. And then yeah. he will literally write another one, a follow-up one of thoughts that he forgot. So I'm that he I'm, forgot. Yeah. Well, I'm surprised. All of the things that he said of what makes a great producer. Do you agree? I mean, I think, you know, I've seen you do it exactly what, what you do well. Like I think a good producer is someone who can handle when everything goes wrong because everyone looks at you and someone said this the other day on a set, I was on set and there was a storm happening and a tornado watch was coming and I was telling everyone the plan of the tornado watch and some sweet little PA came up to me and was like, it just makes me feel so much comfortable to feel like someone is in charge. And I was like, I don't think of that in like a weird hierarchy system because I don't care about being anyone's boss. But I do think that is true in life. Like people like to know that there is someone who is watching. There is like a grown up on set and there is someone who is there to take care of everyone and, and try their hardest to make sure everyone is happy and like working to the best of their ability. And I think like that is a skill that some people have and some people don't. I'm not saying I have it, but I'm saying I think that's what makes a great producer for sure. I feel like you definitely have it. I think like you are a great model in that sense where you are a good time. Like I definitely had a perception of what I thought like a producer had to be like a certain personality type, especially as a woman in that space where you are in control and you're helping oversee and as a lot of men, obviously, who are department heads. But I think like when you when you really clicks that you can kind of bring who you are to the job, you know, and how you navigate the challenges. And so like for you, and I think we're similar in that sense, we use a lot of humor and laughter. And there's like a levity to things that reminds people like, hey, like, we don't have to take this all so seriously, like, let's show up, let's do the job well. But there's also an aspect of like, we're making a movie, we're going to figure it out. And I think people really respond to that kind of type of leadership quality, at least that I've observed in my projects, you know, and I think you definitely have that. Well, and being grateful. I mean, if there's anything I wish, I hope every producer is doing is like, I am, I try to be so, so grateful. And I know you do as well. Like that's something that you and I really aligned on from the beginning is just people are leaving their families and their lives and they're, they're on set for 14 hours and they're, you know, it's not their dream. Like their dream was not to make that movie. Their dream is to have healthcare and a good job and to have a family or whatever it is they want. And we are taking their time and it is a very big ask. And I think that there is this sense of sometimes you get on set and people, I mean, I've, I've just done five projects in a year. So I feel like I'm a little, maybe I'm a little more sentimental about this now because I'm very aware of how much of my life has been taken up. But yeah, I, I really try to think lately about every director comes in and it is, it is so important for the directors and the producers They come in, they have been waiting for this project for years. They have been hoping that it's going to go. They get on set. Their dream is coming true. They're making it and they're there. They're in it 18 hours a day, 19 hours a day. doesn't mean that everyone else is. What it means is that you can ask people for their craft and their ability to be on set with you for the time you're paying for. And then you have to kind of release them and like, let them go home a little bit and like, yeah, you would be with their lives because they they're doing this over and over and over. I mean, they wrap a movie on a Friday and they start another one on a Monday. It's just, it's not the same as us. Like we all have these sailor hours where we get to do two months on and we get to go home for two months. Like who doesn't get that? And I try, I try to be so grateful and so 
um, humble by like the work that we get from these people because it's incredible. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Speaking of that, though, this idea of work-life balance, which is like an endless quest what, for what it. Is <laughs> what is that? What is that? you speak of. <laughs> but, you know, you've been going for a long time. Like since we've met, you've, you were already coming off a thing and starting Honk. And then we're like in the office for Honk, prepping Caddo and like selling him. Like you were just doing a, always a million things true to like a producer's um, sort of MO. But, you know, how do you find time in, in for self-care? What does that look like for you nowadays? No, I don't know if I have self-care. I mean, I got a massage yesterday because some friends of mine bought it for me and they sent it to my house, which is really nice. Um, yeah. Cause I had a rough first week of shooting, but I, I haven't figured it out yet. I mean, I've taken the advice of Sundance. I did the labs a couple of years ago and, and Sundance gave me this really great gift where they were like, the two things you need is you need a lawyer and you need to not work on a day of the week. Like one day of the week, you need to say, I'm not going to answer things. Um, yeah. And I do that now. And I didn't used to do that. And I do now, like on Sundays, I mean, I'm doing this, but it's not work because we're friends yeah. and I wanted, <laughs> wanted to do it. But like Sundays, I, do, yeah. I really try not to work. I don't answer emails. I don't talk to people about their films. I give them six days of my life a week. And like after six days, it doesn't mean that I don't love it or that I want to do it. It just means I have to like look at my husband and have a conversation about our life or go on a walk or go on a hike or plan a dinner, like just something. Yeah. Otherwise, I just think, I don't know, I think you lose what you're all doing it for, you know? It's yeah, what's the point? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Speaking of like, you know, I'm, uh, I've been very honest on the show about my own uh, struggles, like especially coming up as a freelancer with like anxiety and depression and like self-worth being tied to the work or the money or the title or whatever. What are some of those challenges for you? Like in these lulls of your career, how have you weathered those storms and, and what keeps you going when you feel discouraged and like you could always go back to wedding planning, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's funny. I think I, I think I just passed the hurdle, like probably a year or two ago where I've started to realize that no matter what, I'll be okay. Like, even if I, even if everything goes wrong and everything fell apart tomorrow, I'll still survive and be fine because I've done, I've done so many years at terrible jobs. Like I've waited tables. I've nannied. I've, I've like, you know, I did gorilla poster hanging in Brooklyn. Like I have done all the things I have been paid by the cash, by the hour under a bridge in Brooklyn. Like I have done that stuff for so many years and I survived always happily. And so now that I actually have like a career that I love and I cherish, like, I just know that no matter what, even if it all fell apart, I'm going to be fine. Like I will yeah. figure it out. I'm a smart person. Um, I I'm lucky. I mean, I don't, I don't really struggle too much with anxiety and, and so many people around me do. And I see how, how hard it is. I definitely struggle with, um, I wouldn't say depression, but if I work too much, like I notice if I work too many days in a row and I don't go outside, I start to wonder why I'm doing it. And I can't, I I can't function in that way. That's why I have to have the Sunday rule. Like I have to go on a hike or I have to not look at my phone for six hours. Um, because I can't see another text from another director or producer mm. or friend who's just like, can you read this or can you do this? I'm like, I don't have the, the capacity right now. Yeah. Um, I had a therapist once tell me that the, the phrase I need to use is I'm at capacity. And I use that now a lot with people where I'll just, it's like, I can't, I can't intake anymore. So, yeah. So for you, it's like not in the in-between times when you're not working, it seems like in the past that has never been something that has weighed you down. Oh, I mean, I truly don't know if I've had, I, I feel like the biggest in between time I had was COVID. And that was definitely like a struggle. I mean, I was like, will I ever work again? 
movie ever happened that I'm a part of again. I look back on that now and I'm like, oh, how little you knew. <laughs> because like now yeah. there's like the boom of filmmaking. I mean, at this point, I am very fortunate in my career where like I am I am not able to do every movie that I want and I'm turning down films. Yeah. And I'm not because I just can't put my attention on everything. And I, and I don't mean that as a brag. I mean, that as like, there's just too much work and there's not enough people, especially enough people who know what they're doing. Yes. So it is a, it is a hard balance of, of wanting to help and wanting to be a part of things, but I'm also not the kind of producer who like, doesn't go to set. Like I know those people and it's just never been me. I am usually the one who's there on day one and I'm on there on the last day and I've never had another experience. So that yeah. that has been hard for me to be like, I just truly don't have time in the day. So when things fall apart, like movies that you're putting together fall apart or certain, you know, you spend years tra- traversing a path and then that door shuts in your face. Like when these, these situations have occurred, like what gives you the, the sort of strength, I guess, to keep going? I mean, I think it's the director, to be honest. Like, mm. I don't think a movie can make, can be made without a director who is is not going to force it to be made. Like I have been really lucky. The projects that I've had that have fallen apart, I have always known they're going to come back together because I know the director well enough to know. And I, and I vetted them and, and was with them enough time beforehand to be like, we're in this, like it is to the great, like we're going until this movie is done long gone, you know, behind us, we will be there through it. And that is the commitment I'm making to them. And that is the commitment that they're making to me. And I, the first, you know, dating period is you want to call it with each director. If I even get a sense from the director, that's like, I could make it or I could not, then I just don't do the movie because, because the likelihood of that movie falling apart is very high. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to spend years putting it back together, falling apart, putting it back together. And I can't do all of that time. If for them, it doesn't even mean anything. So right. I have to find directors who were like, I am making this movie no matter what. And when I hear that, that is like what gets me to be able to say like, okay, I'm going to work on this for free for two years. Right. And I know we're going to make it. I know in the end, it's not about the money. I know I'm going to see this product in front of me. Because of them. Because of them. And like, I can't force a director to feel that way. I can't drag them along the way. And like a lot of people don't have that ability, but I try to really find directors who have that. I love that. I mean, it's, it, it's worked, you know, you can really see it in the choices you've made and the kinds of filmmakers you've invested that time and energy into. And I think perhaps that has been the secret sauce, you know, for you is that you've invested in people that were going to make their projects by any means necessary. It was just a matter of time. It wasn't a hobby. It wasn't a like, maybe this would be cool. It's like this story has to exist. And it's just a matter of time, right until it's birthed into existence. Um, So I think that's really admirable. What is something that you wish you had known when you started that now you kind of know? I mean, I don't know if there's anything I wish I had known because I feel like I got, I got a lot in the beginning. A lot of people who were really smart told me really wise things. I definitely think the advice I would give to other people now is don't just make something to make something because it will be a waste of your time and your life. Make something that like you truly connect with. Like if you love the story, if you can talk about it anytime, if you are at dinner gushing about this movie that you want to get made or you just made, like that is the movie you should be making. Not the one that's like, it has a cool person in it or there's good people involved. I just don't see how those ever meaningfully like pay off. I do think that it's about finding your people and like yeah. working with your people. And then it's about really carrying them with you and like loyalty. And what does that look like to bring the people who you love to work with? who make your job easier and more fun and more exciting. And like, how do you kind of make a little band or a circus and you travel together as a unit? 
It's not just yeah. about making a buck or kind of making a thing to make a thing because like there's just too much content in the world. It's just not worth yeah. it. Yeah. Well, and your life is just the one, right? So choose wisely when you can. I think when you're starting out and you kind of have to take whatever's coming your way sometimes too, but whenever you get to that sweet spot where you have a little bit more autonomy and choice, right, in the matter than to really make those more strategic, smart choices for yourself. So that like, regardless of the outcome, to your point, like at least the journey getting there will hopefully have been fulfilling enough that you don't, if things don't align, become just another sort of angry, bitter, resentful person in, in Hollywood. We got too many of those. So don't be on those. <laughs> don't be gotten those. Um, if there isn't anything else, then we can move on to the quick lightning round. Anyone who has not worked with Carolina. She is very, very talented. I don't know how many people on your show have actually worked with you. So if, if I'm the one who can vouch for you, you are an incredible producer and a, and a very wonderful partner. So I'm really lucky that I got to work yeah. with you Thanks, before buddy. you went away to your big fancy job. I know. It's like the hardest part. It's like the first little problem of the FOMO. You know, it's like, I feel like once we met, I was like, can we just keep working together forever? And then you're like, I'm going to make this movie. I was like, I can't. I got to go be, work with Isa, which is a wonderful problem to have. But, you know, things, things always circle back. So you ain't seen the last of me, kid. I love it. I, lo- I texted yeah. you the other day from me on this movie and was like, it's been hard. And you were like, I miss it. And I was like, you don't though. <laughs> like you just don't. It's no, just too it's crazy. Like, you know, parts of it, you miss being in the trenches with people and like that feeling of like camaraderie of like this matters. Like, yes, finding that green pillow that is so important to the art, like all of those random things that only come up in, in set. Like, you know, I do, you do miss parts of it, but you're right. Like it's grueling. It really is, you know? And, and, unless you've lived that life it's like you know and i was actually texting with taylor because he's like this shit's hard and i was like yeah bro it's like yes it is like i was like honk was probably like paradise compared to what you're going through whole other world i mean yeah when we were supposed to record and i canceled on you last it was like i was on the phone until midnight with sag you know just talk whatever just going through it so yeah yeah Yeah. world indeed well this has been so lovely um so lovely. Anyone who's lucky enough to work with Ms. Cara Durrett, she's just at the very beginning of her career. She's got many, many more things to pop out for us, including a baby that I can't wait to meet sometime He's soon. He's coming. Are you comfortable? I'm sorry. I, I, Cara's been recording this from a closet. So Breathing heavily into the microphone. <laughs> for anyone who's like, is she okay? I am seven she months is. pregnant on a floor. Yes, it's fine. <laughs> is. I'm so excited for you. I'm excited for you for this next chapter. I'm excited for all the movies that you've got. I think it's funny that me, the idea of giving birth right now feels like a vacation to what I've been going through the last <laughs> six months. I'm like, I can't wait to have some time off and have a child. Like can't that can't wait. be good. All right. Let us move on to the lightning round to take us out. What's a song that teleports you to a happy place? Oh my gosh. Honestly, I've been listening to the David Byrne American Utopia album that's on Broadway right now. And that has really been getting me through life. It's just fun. It's like inspiring. And I think he's a genius. And I wish all things existed like they did in his brain. What is the latest piece of art that moved you? A book, a film, a show, anything? I mean, honestly, the latest one was probably Come On, Come On, which I know people have like very mixed feelings about. I loved it. I thought it was remarkable. I've been looking for the kid's book, Star Child, that he reads to the little boy in the book. I've been going to every bookstore in every city that I go to the last six months looking for this book. I just think about that movie a lot. Fill in the blank. When I'm overworked, blank helps ease the stress. Oh, my husband. I know that's so lame. It's so lame. (laughs) 
I'm so, I'm so in love and we're so, we're so, um, good for each other and it's all the things. And maybe it's cause yeah. I'm pregnant and like very, uh, we're both attached to each other right now because we've worked out of town for the last six months away from each other, but he's just so good. I mean, today I was like very stressed about something and he, you know, came in with pizza and candy and like offered to give me a massage and was just very sweet. So. Yeah, he's a good guy. He's a good guy. You guys are good together. It's nice. Um, okay, what is one of the most worthwhile investments you've ever made? And it doesn't have to be financial. I think I honestly think doing those shorts, those years, um, it was an investment in my career. It was an investment in meeting people. I knew no one when I came to LA. I knew nothing about film. And it was something that I remember at the time thinking, why are you doing this for free? Like you were, you know, you were making money as a wedding planner. You were an event planner. You were doing all these things. Like you're doing every weekend as some project or something. And I look back on it now and I'm like, Oh, that was such a good investment in time. And also just the people I met, I met the coolest people. And so many of them are still my friends and I still make movies with. And yeah. Well, this is the final question. I loved Inside the Actor Studio growing up. I'm sure you did too. So borrowing from that show, the question is inspired by the famed French journalist Bernard Pivot. And the question is, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? I think I'd like him to say your pugs are here. <laughs> <laughs> is that so lame? No, that is so sweet. That's you what know they're going to be. You don't know, you know, dogs are tricky. I don't know. People don't know if they're going to. I think I want to know my dogs will be there because I love them. And yeah. Yeah. Animals in general, I think are just like the best part of life. So I, I, I have a feeling they'll be there, but I'm just who knows? I don't know what's on the other side. But well, this has been so lovely. Thank you so much for so fun. So but family. this is awesome. I think it's it's cool. I think in five years when you listen to this and you have this little moment, hopefully you'll be like, oh, that was cool. I'm glad I did that. <laughs> I'm glad she pestered me. Yeah, I'm glad she it. pestered me. Yeah. <laughs> if any person listening gets any value out of these conversations, and, and I know a lot of people do, um, then then that's why we do it. You know, like I wish we had this when we were coming up, just to have a little bit of guidance. Everybody's got such unique paths, and how there isn't one way. All of the things that like get laid out for you, and how do you make the best out of all of that to like carve out a path for yourself? And I think we both have done that in our respective you know careers, and so. It's why I was like, I must have her on because like there's so much similarities. And so thanks so much for tuning in and doing this life thing with me. If you like the show, please don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. I'm at Carolina Gropa. The show's at Angle on Producers. And I'll see you next week. Beijos. <laughs>